Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. On Tuesday night, before Jesus' crucifixion, he and some friends gathered together in a house of a man named Simon who had previously been a leper. Jesus, we assume, had touched his life, had healed him of his leprosy. It was a celebratory moment. You see, about a week before the Passover, Jerusalem began to fill with crowds of people who were there in anticipation of the coming Passover. And that particular Passover, the crowds were abuzz. They were wondering, is Jesus going to show up at this Passover? Will he perform any miracles? And show up, Jesus did. On the Sunday before his crucifixion and before the Passover, on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they sang of him messianic psalms, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus proclaimed that even the rocks would have cried out had he asked the multitudes to be silent. Jesus had gone into the temple. He had cleansed the temple just like he had done years earlier at the beginning of his ministry. He had cursed a fig tree. It dried up from the roots, and he had gone back into Bethany, a town on the outskirts of Jerusalem, to hide and lay low from the religious leaders. You see, by that time, the religious leaders had issued a warrant for Jesus' arrest. They knew that they couldn't arrest him in front of the crowds, and so they were looking for an opportune time, perhaps at night, perhaps away from the multitudes, to bring Jesus into captivity. And so, on that Tuesday night, all of those events in the past, Jesus having already ushered a major rebuke to the religious leaders and religious establishment, Jesus having spent the earlier part of Tuesday on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, prophesying about the coming destruction of the temple and the people of Israel being scattered through the world and his eventual return to earth, Jesus went into the home of Simon the leper and partook of a meal. He was the guest of honor, but there was a secondary guest that people wanted to gather around. His name was Lazarus. Jesus had brought Lazarus, of course, back to life. And Lazarus's two sisters were there as well, Martha and Mary. Now, as they feasted, as they gathered, as they celebrated, and as people marveled at Lazarus's life and Jesus's power, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, took a alabaster flask of fragrant oil, apparently worth about a year's worth of wages, a, year's, uh, a year of wages, and she broke it, pouring out the oil on Jesus's head and on Jesus's feet. It was an act of devotion. It was an act of worship on that Tuesday night. Now the disciples who were not as in tune to the situation as Mary was, they began to murmur about this action. Judas started 
saying we should have taken this oil and sold it and given the proceeds to the poor. But the Gospels tell us that he said this because he often put his hand in the money box. He was a thief, even though he was the treasurer. But that sentiment began to fill the room until somebody began rebuking Mary for what she was doing. Jesus, catching wind of this attitude, rebuked them all and said what she has done is a beautiful thing for she has done what she could and she is anointing my body for burial. And wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now this appears to have been the last and final straw for Judas Iscariot. Judas's problem was that he could not let Jesus just be Jesus. He had his own image of what Jesus should be, and Jesus was not conforming to that image. And this last episode was the final straw for Judas. And so he stole away into the night and went to the religious leaders and propositioned them, asked them, how much money will you give me to betray Jesus to you? After all, they were looking for a time away from the crowds in secret where Jesus could be delivered to them, but Jesus was in hiding, so to speak. And now Judas presents them with the opportunity that they're looking for, and they strike the deal for 30 pieces of silver, according to the prophecies of the Old Testament. All of that occurred on Tuesday night. The Bible fast forwards to Thursday during the day in the next episode in Jesus's life. The disciples all knew that the Passover meal was coming, and so they asked Jesus where they should go to prepare to eat that Passover meal together. They'd done it in previous Passovers, and so they wondered, where are we going to eat the meal this year? And Jesus looked at Peter and John, singled them out, and told them to go into Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, they would see a man with a jar on top of his head. This was an odd thing, an obscure thing in that culture. It would have stood out to them. He told them to then follow that man and that the house that he went into, they should approach the master and say that the Lord's hour has now come and that the Lord needs their upper room to eat that supper, that meal together. So Peter and John went into Jerusalem and found it just as Jesus had said and began preparing that upper room for the Passover meal, the last supper that Jesus would enjoy with his disciples. Now, part of the reason that Jesus had done it that way, sending them into the city with them looking for the man with the jar of water on, their, on his head was so that Judas could hear that they were going to eat the Last Supper, but not know the specific location where they would be that night. Jesus was trying hard to preserve that final moment, that meal with his disciples. Now that night, when they gathered together in that upper room, Jesus announced to them in greeting, I have longed greatly to eat this meal with you. 
Jesus had been anticipating that moment. They didn't realize it was a last supper, but Jesus absolutely knew that it was their final meal, so to speak, before he went to the cross. He said, with great desire, I have wanted to partake of, I have wanted to eat this meal with you. Then they responded in such an obtuse way by beginning to argue once again about who among them would be the greatest. And so Jesus patiently taught them. He said, you, if you want to be a leader, must behave like a servant. If you want to be prominent, you must act like the younger serving their elders. And as an example of this, Jesus then girded himself up with his garments, took the form of the lowest slave, took a basin of water, and methodically began to wash the feet of his disciples. When Jesus came to Peter, Peter objected. Lord, you'll not wash my feet. But Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter then responded, then Lord, wash all of me. And Jesus said, uh, you are clean, but it is only your feet that need to be cleansed. But then Jesus announced and said, but not all of you are clean. This was a reference, of course, to the one Judas who would betray him. And with that, Jesus announced to his disciples that one of them would rise up against him. One of them would betray him. And everyone in the room began asking, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Judas, the gospels tell us, even looked at Jesus and said, Lord, is it I? And Jesus said, it is as you say. Apparently, they hadn't heard this exchange between Jesus and Judas because Peter motioned to John across the room who was leaning up against Jesus that night and motioned to him to ask Jesus privately. And so he asked, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, it is he who, when I dip the bread and hand it to him, he takes the bread and eats it. And he dipped the bread, extended his hand to Judas, and Judas reached out his hand and took the bread and consumed it. And as the bread entered his body, horrifically, the Bible says, and so did Satan. Satan began to possess and control Judas at that moment. Now Jesus looked at Judas and said, what you must do, go and do quickly. And Judas arose from the table and left the room in order to set in motion the events of Jesus's betrayal, his arrest later on that night. Now the disciples, still clueless about Judas and his identity, just simply thought that Jesus sent Judas on a special errand. They didn't know why Jesus had sent Judas away, but Jesus began to speak to them. He said, all of you are going to deny me this night, just as a shepherd when he is struck causes the sheep to scatter, so will you scatter because I will be struck this very evening. A quotation from the book of Zechariah. Peter, when he heard this, couldn't believe his ears and said to Jesus, Lord, even if all of them deny you, I 
will not deny you. He just couldn't imagine that he would turn from Jesus. He'd not come face to face with his own limitations and weaknesses. He'd not yet become a broken man. Jesus said, Peter, surely you will deny me. This very night, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows for the second time this night. Peter said, it's not possible. I will die for you rather than deny you. And all the other disciples expressed the same attitude as well, agreeing with Peter that they would die for Jesus. Jesus then said to them, do you remember when I sent you out and I told you not to bring a bag with you filled with supplies. I told you not to bring a wallet filled with money, and I told you not to bring a weapon. But today I tell you that I'm going to send you out after I die, and you will need the supplies, and you will need the money, and you will need to bring a weapon. It was Jesus's way of telling them that they were about to enter into a hostile ministry environment and world. Uh, they looked around and realized that they had two swords amongst them. And so they said, Lord, look, we have two swords. And Jesus said, it is enough. And with that, Jesus then took the bread and the cup. He held the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup, the blood of my new covenant, my blood shed for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. And with that, Jesus announced that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drank it new with them in glory. Now, after that, the disciples and Jesus sang a customary psalm, uh, a hymn unto God. If it was the psalm or hymn that would, was traditionally sung at this point of the Passover meal, it would have been Psalm 118. Let me read to you two striking verses from that psalm. Psalm 118, verse 17 says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. To me, these verses foreshadow what Jesus would accomplish. Though he would die, it's as if he would not die because he would live. And as he was there upon the cross, he was disciplined for us, for our sin, but God has not given his body over to ultimate corruption because he rose from the grave. But they sang their song, and at some point they arose from that upper room and began their journey to the Mount of Olives to go to the Garden of Gethsemane just outside of the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. And as they traveled to the Garden Jesus opened up his heart to these disciples in such a beautiful way. He, he told them 
that his peace would be upon them, that, that they should not allow their hearts to be troubled. He told them that he was going away to prepare a place for them, that where he was, they would also one day be. Thomas asked Jesus, Lord, show us the way. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. And then Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And that would be enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus just continued to open his heart to his disciples on that journey. In John 14 and 15 and 16, he pours forth teaching to his disciples that's so intimate and beautiful. He tells them in that section that the Spirit was going to come after his departure and the Spirit would live inside of them. The same Spirit that had been with them at that point would live within them after Jesus ascended. That spirit Jesus taught them would be the spirit of truth who would guide them and lead them and teach them and remind them of everything that Jesus had said to them so that they could themselves, some of them at least, become authors of holy scripture. And the spirit of God living inside of them would be indicative that the Father and the Son, that God himself had come to reside within them as his people. Because of this, Jesus gave a picture. He said, my Father is the vine dresser, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. The picture he gave is of disciples, believers, in vital relationship with him, clinging to him every day of their lives, receiving the nutrients of life with Jesus so that we could bear fruit in our lives today. He told his disciples to love one another, partly because of the coming opposition. He said, the world hates me, and it will also, because it hates me, hates, hate you. So prepare yourself. He said, I'm telling these th things to you ahead of time so that you will not fall away. The day will come where they will banish you from synagogues and persecute you in religious meetings. He said, but don't worry, the Spirit will partner with you and convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will be active with you as you do things in a sense that are even greater than I have done in this earthly ministry of mine. The church would see people become regenerated by the Spirit of God, a powerful and incredible work of the Spirit. And with that, as they traveled to Gethsemane, Jesus then prayed, the incredible high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. Uh, he prayed there in John 17 for himself that he would be glorified with the same glory that he had with the Father from before time began. He, he prayed for the disciples that they would be sanctified, set aside, preserved, that they would grow, but that God the Father would protect them during this hour of trial and difficulty. But did you know that he also prayed 
for every future generation of believers. He prayed for you. He prayed for me that night as well, that we would be unified with the apostles and eventually that we would be unified or reunited with Jesus in heaven, in his kingdom, in glory. Now, after saying all of those things and saying this prayer to God, Jesus and the disciples at some point arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane. This was a place that Judas knew about because Jerusalem was not made to house many pilgrims and visitors. There were not enough hotels or rooms for people to stay in, so many pilgrims would lodge in the countryside. And it seems that Jesus and his disciples had perhaps come to an agreement with the owner of the Garden of Gethsemane and had stayed there previous times that they'd been in Jerusalem for the various feasts. This was the place where Jesus would be betrayed. This is the place where Judas would deliver Jesus to the religious leaders. And so great heaviness came upon Jesus's heart in that moment. He told his disciples that he needed to go away to spend time in prayer. He told Peter and James and John that he wanted them to join with him in prayer and took them a little deeper into the garden. And then he left them and went even deeper still into the garden where he prayed for an hour with great agony. Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, Father. And after an hour of praying this way, where he sweat, as it were, like drops of blood coming from his brow, he came back to Peter and James and John and saw them sleeping for sorrow, the Bible says. He woke them. He said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is a moment for prayer, Jesus said. And with that, he left them and entered into a second hour of similar prayer and came back and found them sleeping again, woke them again, repeated his words, went back for a third hour of prayer, and an angel of God began to strengthen him. And after that third hour, emboldened, enlivened by the Spirit of God and convicted that there was no other way and that he would drink that cup from the Father. Jesus departed from prayer and woke his disciples the third time and said, it is enough. See, my betrayer is at hand. With that, Judas came into the garden with a mob holding clubs and lanterns and swords like Jesus was a criminal. Many would not have been able to identify Jesus. There were no photographs or video images in that day. And so Judas had told the religious leaders and the crowd with him that he would identify Jesus with a kiss. He approached Jesus. Jesus said, is it you? Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed 
Jesus. Jesus then looked at the crowd and said, who do you seek? They said, Jesus. And he said, I am he. And when he said those words, the power was so strong with him that they all fell backwards. Once they scrambled to their feet, Jesus asked a second time, who do you seek? They said, we seek Jesus. And Jesus began to step forward. With that, some of Jesus' disciples began to ask the question, should we strike? Should we attack? Peter didn't wait for Jesus' response and took out one of the swords and struck the servant of the high priest, a man named Malchus, slicing off his right ear. Jesus, though, quickly healed Malchus and said to his disciples, do you not know that I could call out to my father in this moment and he would send to me 12,000 angels to deliver me from this moment? But this is the plan of God. He looked at his captors. He said, leave my disciples alone. Let them depart. But I will give myself over to you. Have you come out? Like I'm a criminal with clubs and swords and lanterns. I was teaching every day publicly in the temple. Why have you come out secretly? He said, but this is your hour. The power of darkness. With that, the, they bound Jesus in the middle of the night and took him to the house of a man named Annas. Annas should have been the high priest. That was a role that God had said was a permanent role until death. But the Romans didn't like anyone to have lifelong power, so they didn't allow Annas to remain in that role. But they took Jesus first to Annas, the more legitimate high priest, to his home privately in the middle of the night. Annas inquired of Jesus, questioned him about his teaching. Jesus said, I taught publicly. I have not spoken privately. You could ask any one of my followers what I said. Why do you interrogate me privately about my teaching? And one of the people standing by struck Jesus and said, is this how you answer the high priest? With that, they then took Jesus, bound to the seat sitting high priest, a man named Caiaphas, who was actually the son-in-law of Annas. And at Caiaphas's house, there in the middle of the night, all of the Sanhedrin, the religious authority there in Jerusalem, gathered together. People were in the courtyard, Peter and John included. Uh, many people were gathering together, and there in the home, they tried to put together some semblance of a trial. Witnesses came forward, false witnesses, who couldn't even agree together about what Jesus had said or what Jesus had done. Finally, they began to ask Jesus, are, are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Jesus said, it is as you say, and one day you will see the Son of God coming again in the clouds. And with that, they tore their garments and 
declared that he was committing blasphemy. They covered his face and they began to strike him and beat him and say, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Then, because they knew that this was an illegal trial, they waited until the early moments of the day, gathered together and ushered one last formal vote and conviction against Jesus. They determined that he was a blasphemer who declared himself to be the son of God, which in their vernacular meant that he declared himself God the son. And so Jesus to them must die. Now the problem is that they did not have the power to condemn anyone to death. So they had to bring Jesus to the Roman authorities, and that meant they had to bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Early in the morning, they showed up at Pilate's residence. They wouldn't even go inside because they declared that they would make themselves unclean on the Passover if they went inside. Little did they realize they were responsible for killing the ultimate Passover lamb. Pilate came out to them. He asked them, what can I do for you? They said, we've found this man. He is guilty. He, he, he must die. He has made himself into a king over and against Caesar. They knew that they couldn't tell Pilate that they had a religious objection about Jesus. And so they simply told Pilate that Jesus had made himself a king over and against Caesar. Jesus took Judah, excuse me, Pilate took Jesus aside and said to him, are you a king? Now, Jesus said, I am here to witness of the truth. If I came as a king to fight today, we would fight in response. And Judas, or excuse me, Pilate then responded, what is truth? With that, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. Jesus had done most of his ministry in the region of the Galilee, and that's where Herod was uh, presiding over. Uh, that's where he was an official. And so Pilate, hoping to find some kind of accusation to bring against Jesus, sent Jesus to Herod. Herod interviewed Jesus. He had hoped for a long time to see some miracle, some trick that Jesus would perform. But you must remember that Herod was responsible for taking John the Baptist's life, a man that Jesus loved, called him a righteous man, and was actually a relative of Jesus. And so Jesus stood there silent. He would not answer Herod a word. And so Herod, mocking Jesus, dressed him in splendorous clothing and sent him back to Pilate. And the Bible says that the two who had been enemies before became friends that day. Pilate and Herod formed a bond or an allegiance around their animosity towards Jesus. Now, Pilate was struggling. He couldn't find anything worthy of any kind of accusation to bring against Jesus. He appeared to be totally innocent. 
And so he asked the crowds that had begun to gather if they would like him to release Jesus to them or a man named Barabbas who had been a political assassin of some sort or another. This was a custom that Pilate had given to the people of Israel in Jerusalem during the Passover, a way for him to appease a people that the Romans were oppressing. To his surprise, though, the people did not respond and say, release Jesus, because the religious leaders had stirred the crowds to respond, free Barabbas. Pilate was confused by this. He took Jesus and scourged him, beat him, tried to elicit some kind of confession from him. But there was no confession. There was nothing of which Jesus was guilty. He began bringing Jesus back out to the crowd. And around that time, word came from Pilate's wife to Pilate saying, have nothing to do with that man, for I have suffered many things because of him in a dream. Pilate was at his wit's end. He brought Jesus out to the crowds. He said, what should I do with Jesus? I can find no fault in him. And the crowds began chanting, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas and with Jesus, crucify him. Pilate could not believe that the people wanted Jesus to die. He couldn't even find one thing of which he was guilty. And so Pilate said to the crowds, why, what evil has he done? And the crowds said, he made himself out to be the son of God. With that, Pilate pulled away, went behind the scenes to interview Jesus again. He said, where are you from? And Jesus would not respond. And so Pilate said, don't you know that I have the power to kill you, the power over your life, the power to crucify you? But Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no power at all unless it had been given to you from above. And with that, Pilate went out before the crowd and ceremonially washed his hands and said, my hands are innocent of this man's blood. And the crowds cried, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And with that, they put a crown of thorns upon Jesus's head and a purple garment upon his back. And the soldiers beat him and mocked him and hailed him as the king of the Jews. They then compelled Jesus to go to Mount Calvary to be crucified. He had been so weakened by the beatings of the religious leaders, by the scourging of the Roman officials, and by the beatings of the Roman guard, that he could not carry the crossbeam himself to Mount Calvary. So they compelled a man who was there on pilgrimage, a man named Simon of Cyrene, to carry Jesus' crossbeam for him. And as they traveled on the path to Mount Calvary, the women 
of Jerusalem were weeping for Jesus. Again, the multitudes, by and large, loved Jesus. It was just that crowd that was there before Pilate that had been stirred up by the religious leaders. And as the women wept, Jesus said, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. If they would do these things when the grass is green or the trees are green, what will they do in the winter? You should weep for yourselves. It would be better for you to be barren and have no children and never have nursed a child than to experience what Jerusalem is about to suffer because of their rejection of me. With that, they arrived at Calvary. They stripped Jesus naked, casting lots for his garments according to the prophecies of Psalm 22, and pinned him, nailed him through his hands or his wrists, his ankles or his feet to his cross. They put a sign above him that said, King of the Jews. It actually stirred up a little bit of an argument. The religious leaders going back to Pilate and saying, don't put on his cross king of the Jews, put on his cross. He said he was king of the Jews. But Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. As Jesus suffered there upon the cross, they offered to him something to drink. It would have numbed the pain, gall mixed with myrrh. But Jesus, wanting to experience all of the pain, refused that drink for himself. And as they mocked him, he cried out and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And with that, the mockery grew more intense. They said he saved others, but himself he cannot save. They said, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. They said, he said that he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. They didn't realize that Jesus could not save others if he didn't die on the cross. That by allowing himself not to be saved, he could minister to others. And that his own body was the temple that would be destroyed and raised up in three days. Now, as he was being mocked by the crowds that gathered, there were criminals to his right and left who were also being crucified. They also chimed in with the mockery until something happened where one of them realized how wrong he was about Jesus. He looked at the other criminal and said, why would we mock him like this? Don't you see this man is innocent? And he looked at Jesus and said, remember me when you come into glory. And Jesus looked at this man and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now there were many women that were gathered around the cross, followers of Jesus, women like Mary Magdalene or Salome or even Jesus's own mother. And Jesus looked at his own mother who was there with his young disciple named John. And she looked at the, his mother and said, woman, behold your son. 
which was his way of telling Mary to take care of young John. And then he looked at John and said, behold your mother, which was his way of telling John to take care of Mary. And after saying this, great darkness came upon the earth for three hours. From noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, a supernatural darkness overtook the land. I think it was the moment when Jesus was atoning for our sin. God the Son becoming sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I think he was drinking the cup of the wrath of God in that moment. As we read in Psalm 118, the discipline that was ours was coming into Jesus' body during those three hours upon the cross. And after three hours, Jesus cried the first lines of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There had been, it seems, a separation between father and son. But even that cry of despair had within it an undertone, a minor note of hope. Because if they'd gone back and read the rest of that psalm that Jesus began with that quotation, they would have seen the sovereign hand of God in the events of the crucifixion. Some there wondered if he was crying out to Elijah. Some wanted to see what would happen. Jesus then, gathering himself, announced, I thirst. Uh, with that, they brought to him some wine mixed with vinegar, some sour wine, not a concoction that would dull the senses, but could alleviate his thirst and put it in a sponge and put it on a reed and held it up to him and he drank. Then he cried out, it is finished. It's the Greek word to telestai. It means it's paid in full. The, the, the thing that I did upon the cross in dying for the sins of the world, it has worked. It has become and been effective as I have suffered and died because of my great love for you. And with that, Jesus cried out and said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Thinking of Jesus and all he has done, let's take a moment now as Pastor Brenton leads us in the taking of communion, eating at the Lord's table. After Jesus breathed his last, a centurion who was there watching him said, truly this man was innocent. And truly this man was the son of God. A great earthquake shook the land. The veil in the tabernacle or temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Graves in Jerusalem were opened. Some even came out of the graves and appeared during that time. It was a powerful moment. 
Now, Pilate wanted confirmation that Jesus was dead and also wanted to expedite the death of those upon their crosses that day as a favor to the Jews so that people would not be dying on a holy day. And so they came to the cross to break Jesus's legs. But when they found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs because the Bible said not one of his bones would be broken, but instead pierced his side and out of his side flowed blood and water. He had truly, physically, completely died there upon the cross. Joseph of Arimathea with Nicodemus, two members of the Sanhedrin who did not agree with the council's decision and had become secret disciples of Jesus, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus that they might bury him. Pilate gave them permission. Nicodemus and uh, Joseph took the body of Jesus and wrapped it in a linen shroud and hastily, quickly, uh, after embalming him with hundreds of pounds of spices, put him in the tomb with the idea that once the religious feast was over with on Sunday morning, they would come back and complete the burial process. And the story says that the women saw where they lay him. And we'll leave it right there, church, with Jesus in the tomb, knowing that on Sunday, his great and final resurrection will occur. Church, I love you so much. Thank you for joining me for this special time in thinking about our Lord. Lord, we pray and ask that you, Lord Jesus, would become more real to us during this season than ever before. And Lord, we ask and pray that you would draw all men and women to yourself. And if you're out there right now listening to this and you know that you need Jesus in your life, the good news is that he died on that cross in your place, taking your punishment into his body. Cry out to him, say, have mercy upon me, a sinner, Lord. Come into my life and make me new. Thank you for coming to save me. Help me now to live my life for you. God bless you, church. We'll see you on Easter Sunday. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.